The theme of today's sermon, as we have already heard, is about being chosen. And we're going to look at, as it says on the screen, Ephesians 1, 3 through the first part of verse 8. And of course, Paul is a writer to the, uh, of this letter. It's addressed to the saints and the church of Ephesus, those who are faithful uh, in that church. And so beginning with verse 3, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. I'm so glad you're here today. I hope you'll come back tonight for the beginning of Vacation Bible School. As you can see, the stage is set for VBS. I feel a little bit out of place up here. I feel like I should have a Bible Times costume on, but we'll just we'll go ahead and go with what we have. But I hope that you will come back tonight and the following nights for VBS. And let me remind our, I don't know, 250, 300 volunteers. I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think there really are that many volunteers in all the different roles. Let me just remind you that every line spoken on this stage, every song sung up here, every goldfish cracker given to a kid, every marketplace activity, every preschool class and game, and all of that is not about perfection. I've got to do it just right. It has to be perfect. It's about, as Brad just reminded us, planting seeds. And so I hope that whatever your role in VBS, that you will do that with an attitude of God using you to make an impact on a child or a family or someone who comes here, even if they're a member here already, certainly if they're a guest. And so please view it that way. I know you know that, just want to remind you. If you have a Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 1, a device, a Bible. Look at it, Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to spend some time there this morning as we continue in our series called Who Am I? Who Am I? I was at Target the other day, and I had a few items, and so I went to the self-checkout because the 27 other lines built for a cashier to be there were closed, as they always are. I guess they saved those for Christmas. I don't know what that's about. That's probably a different story. But I went through the self-checkout line, and as I was scanning my items, I looked up and noticed on the video screen, it was me right there on the video screen, you know, the security mon monitoring device, I guess. I guess they're watching you. So instead of checking items out at the cashier lines, they're all in a booth watching you scan your own items, I suppose. But I look up at the screen and I'm thinking, man, I look pretty good. <laughs> the, target, the target camera has kind of a slimming effect, I noticed, which I like because the one at Lowe's does not, I can assure you. So I prefer to shop at Target rather than Lowe's. But I noticed that and I think I think that is sort of how we live our lives, you know? We're, we're just always kind of thinking about who we are, what we look like, what other people see when they see us. And that idea of how we see ourselves is something we cannot escape. And it's such an important thing, how you see yourself. Because it doesn't just determine your self-confidence and your self-image, 
Those things are important, and it certainly does that. But it impacts how you view other people, how you view and interact in your relationships. It impacts how you view your life and the world and the things that you do and the things that you say and the decisions you make. How you see yourself is so very important. And it's so unfortunate and it's so sad that the world and that Satan, I think, uses the world to beat you down, to tell you that you are someone that God did not make you to be. It's so unfortunate that as you are shaping your identity, who am I, that the world and Satan say, well, you're worthless. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not thin enough. It's so unfortunate that the world says that because those voices have no right to tell you that. They didn't create you. They don't have a life for you to live. They don't even have your best interest in mind. That's what this series is about. It's about going back to the one who created us, the one who has a life for us to live, the one who made us, as we talked about last week, in his image. And so we're beginning every one of these messages, every one of these messages with a threefold declaration First of all, of who we are not. Borrowing these items from Henry Nouwen. Good reminders of the lies that Satan tells us about who we are. The lies that the world tries to use to shape our identity. And so we want to say these every time because the more we say them, hopefully, the more we will believe them. And so if you believe these things, I want you again this week, if you hear last week we did this, I want you to say these out loud with me. I want you to repeat after me. I am not what I have. I am not what I do. I am not what other people say about me. I know that's a little bit awkward, a little bit weird to say that, but again, the idea is that those words, those declarations will begin to sink into your mind, into your heart, and begin to take root as you discover who you are, as you think about who God made you to be. Because look at all three of those. Don't we fall into those traps so often? We tend to think that if we can compile enough money, if we have possessions, that that gives us status, that that gives us importance and influence and worth and value. Or maybe it's our job, what we do, it's our career, it's our, it's our place at work, because there at work we have influence and we have power, and, and that begins to take root in us, and we think that we are something that maybe we are not. Or maybe it's simply, as we said a few minutes ago, that we begin to believe what other people say about us. People who aren't looking out for us, people who are probably serving themselves, they certainly aren't having our best interest at my, at, at, in their minds. And so it's so important that we remember these things. So that's who we are not. Then the natural next question then is, well, who am I? Who am I? And if you hear last Sunday, we talked about a couple of things. First of all, we said we are made in God's image. That God has chosen to image himself, to reflect himself in us. And remember, if you were here, if you didn't, you may want to watch these past two messages online. We said that it's like we're holding up a mirror at a 45-degree angle. When people see us, 
we reflect the image of God to them. That's how God made us. That's how he created us. That's, that's what he has in mind for us, that we project or reflect the image of God, the heart of God, the mind of God to the world. But so often we get that mixed up and we turn the mirror upside down or backwards and we begin to look at ourselves and focus on ourselves and then the world can't see God in us. The world just sees a shadow of who we are made to be. But then we also talked Sunday night as Jeremy went through uh, some of those texts in 1 Corinthians about us being the temple of God, that God has chosen to dwell in us, not just over us, not just among us, not just in a physical temple as he did with Israel in the Old Testament, but in us through his Holy Spirit, his power, his presence among us. And if you just think about those two things, we have many more messages in this series, but if you just think about those two things, what do they say about God? What do they say about you? What do they say about what God thinks of you? Well, they say God values you. God loves you. He cherishes you. He sees great worth in you. He created you. He dwells in you through his spirit. And so as we continue, what else does God say about us, about who we are, about our identity? And that's what brings us to Ephesians chapter 1. Because I think in Ephesians chapter 1, we are reminded of one aspect of our identity that is so critical, so important, especially to anyone who has ever felt left out, to anyone who has ever felt like, they're on the outside looking in. Have you ever been passed over for a promotion? Have you ever been skipped for a job that you really thought you were qualified for, that you really want, that you just went after with everything that you had, but they gave it to someone else? Maybe you know what that's like. Have you ever been passed over for a recognition or an award or a scholarship or something that you felt like you deserved? Maybe you know what it's like to be pushed away, to be ignored, to be dismissed, especially by the in-group or those that have power, whatever form that power takes. Maybe you know what that's like. You know, sometimes we just don't seem to be able to escape middle school PE class, you know? Maybe you remember middle school PE class, right, where the teacher comes in and chooses two captains and says, okay, pick your teams and go at it. And then he usually goes and sits in his office and does whatever. <laughs> and so these two captains pick their teams, and there's some people who are chosen first, and they're all excited about it. But there's always people who are chosen last. And it's almost like a, a compromise. Okay, I'll, I'll take him, you take her. Come on, you can come with us. We have to choose everybody. You know, that doesn't just happen in middle school PE class. <laughs> that seems to happen over and over in life. And the details are different, the circumstances are different, but the feelings are the same. Maybe you know what that's like, to be on the outside looking in. I want you to see what the Bible says about you, about us. And so the book of Ephesians begins with this beautiful hymn. Paul writes this letter, and like many of his letters, he begins by praising God, by pointing his recipients of this letter to God and acknowledging some of the things about God that are praiseworthy. And it's such a beautiful hymn. In fact, in the original language, it's just one sentence. The first 12 verses, just one sentence, one long 
run-on sentence. English translators came in there and broke it up and put punctuation. And so you lose some of the rhythm, you lose some of the flow, but the meaning is still there. And so I want us to begin in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he's writing this. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Did you see what Paul said? You have always been on the mind and in the heart of God. Even before you were born, God was thinking of you. You see, what I want you to realize this morning, as you consider who you are, as your identity begins to take shape or reshape, is that God chose you. God chose you. If you ever feel left out, if you ever miss out, or feel like you're on the outside looking in, you need to remember this passage, this truth, that God has chosen you. He doesn't overlook you. He doesn't ignore you. He doesn't push you to the side. He doesn't dismiss you. He doesn't leave you by yourself to just take care of yourself. He sees you. And he says, I want you with me. I want you on my team. He chooses you. And by choosing you, he validates you as a person. He says, you have worth. You have value. How do I know that? Because Paul would go on to say that he doesn't just choose you to be on his team or his side. He chooses you to be his child. Keep reading in verse 4. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which is the theme, by the way, of Ephesians, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Paul says, you have been chosen by God as his child. There is nothing more profound when it comes to love. There is nothing more sustainable as love than the love that is associated with adoption. Maybe you have been adopted. Maybe you have adopted. You know that. You know that love is wrapped up in adoption. Because adoption says, I see you, I recognize you, I value you, and more than that, I want you. I choose you. I want you to be with me. I want to have a relationship with you. And Paul says, that's what God has done. He has chosen us. He has adopted us as his children. Now, if we look at this text, there's a word there we need, we need to deal with. There's a word that brings some confusion sometimes, some angst to people as they try to see what Paul is saying here. And the word is predestined. Verse 5, like, in love God predestined us for adoption. Does that mean that before you were even born, God said, I'm going to choose that person. I predestined that person to be a believer, to be a Christian. And so I'll go through and I'll choose you and you and you 
and he calls your name out, and you, and you, and you, and the rest of you, well, sorry. Is that what that means? I don't think so. That's what Calvinism teaches, by the way. But if you look at the context, even of this passage, and if you look at the rest of the New Testament, it's pretty clear that that's not what Paul is saying here. Otherwise, why would the New Testament encourage people to repent, to respond to the gospel? Why would would there be this worldwide call for people to come to Christ? If it's already been decided, then isn't that just a waste? But we see throughout Scripture this call to repentance, this call to, to come to Christ. Well, there's no need, if that's already been taken care of, if that decision has already been made, there's no reason for you and me to make that decision. There's another variation of this doctrine that some people believe, that God has chosen individuals who he knew in his sovereignty that would choose him, and so he chooses them, right? So in other words, God in his wisdom, he knew who would choose him and who wouldn't. And so he went ahead knowing that and chose those who would choose him. This is called Arminianism. Rather than listening to what John Calvin or Jacob Arminius said about predestination, why don't we simply let Scripture be the voice that explains what it means? And I think it's pretty clear from this passage. So I want to continue reading in Ephesians chapter 1. And as we read this rather lengthy section of Scripture, I want you to look for a couple of things. I want you to look for the plurality of pronouns. Are we talking about individuals here, or are we talking collectively? I also want you to look at this idea of inclusiveness, of being included. Several phrases that have to do with how we are brought together and in whom we are brought together. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. You may want to look in your own text. It will be on the screen as well. He begins by saying, in him. Already there's a qualifier there. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Which you, or when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Did God choose people throughout history for specific tasks? Did he commission people to do certain jobs, have certain roles? Absolutely. The Bible is filled with stories like that. 
This stage is set up. VBS is planned to tell the story of one of those people, David, who God literally chose out of a lineup of brothers, right? Because God, as we read, looks at the heart while people look at the outward appearance. Yes, absolutely. God has chosen throughout history individuals for a specific purpose, a specific role. He has commissioned people. But does that mean that God chooses or predetermines which individuals will be saved and which will be condemned? No, that's not what Paul is saying here. What he did predetermine is that there would be a way of salvation, that sin would not defeat us, that sin would not define us, that anyone and everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, who claims Jesus as Lord, would have, verse 7, redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the grace of God. That's what God predetermined. From the very beginning, that there would be a way, that we would not be lost in our sins, that we would not be hopeless and helpless. He chose us to belong to him, and he made a way for that to happen. Look back at verse 11. Notice that word there. It was according to his plan. According to his plan. It was a plan. It wasn't a specific person. It was a sovereign plan that God predetermined to put in place for your benefit, for my benefit. And that plan sent Jesus to the earth, ultimately to the cross. It's a plan that gave you life, real life, meaningful life, eternal life. He chose to make a way. Again, did you see that phrase over and over? In him. That's the way. He sent Jesus to be the way. So those who put their faith in Jesus are part of the fulfillment of God's plan, of God's ancient purpose, beginning with the choice of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and down the line, including David, and later, obviously, Jesus. All of that was a part of his plan that he predestined, that he predetermined to put into place, to set into motion so that you could have forgiveness, so that you could be a child of his, so that your sin would not separate you from a holy God. I want us to look at another example in Scripture of this type of wording that is used. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes this letter, this message, to Christians who are being severely persecuted in the first century. And I want you to notice how he opens this letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's what? Elect. To God's elect. Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. It's so important when you read these words that you know exactly who it is he's writing to. These Christians in the first century were being severely persecuted. Their lives were literally put on the line for their faith. 
They were social outcasts, spiritual outcasts in their own communities. And Peter says, you need to remember who you are. Yes, you are exiles, you are foreigners, but that's not really who you are. You are God's elect. The world around you doesn't choose you. In fact, they choose to mistreat you. They choose to dismiss you. They choose to rid the earth of you. But he says, that's not who you are. You are God's elect, chosen by God. It was so important for them to remember this, to have the strength, the faith to continue on. And it's so important for us to know the same thing. Your identity is based in the fantastic reality that you are chosen by God. You are God's elect, God's child. He didn't want them to forget that, and I don't think he wants you to forget that either. And so as we make application, there's so many things that we could say, and I hope that the Holy Spirit is working on your heart and your mind just as we speak right now. What's the takeaway for you? as you began and continue to determine your identity, who you are. But one of the things I want you to know is that your suffering, your struggles, your failures, these things do not define you. Please understand that. If you're going through a season of suffering right now, it is certainly a part of your story, but it's not all of your story. It can't be removed from your story, but it does not define you. If you're being mistreated or neglected in some way, if people around you are treating you badly, that mistreatment of you does not define you. If you find yourself giving in to temptation right now, your sin does not define you. You are not your sin. Let me say that again. You are not your sin. A few years ago, the Associated Press ran a deeply moving story. A story about a name-changing ceremony in Mumbai, India. Maybe you saw the story, maybe you haven't. The headline for the story said, Unwanted Indian Girls Receive a New Name. 285 girls attended this special ceremony. These girls were given the name when they were born unwanted. That was literally in their native language, the name that they were given unwanted. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being named unwanted? This is not an exaggeration. This is true. You see, in India, boys are valued much more than girls are for many reasons. And that's often why female babies are aborted or neglected at an alarming rate. But some people got together and they said, this can't happen. And they put together this ceremony for 285 girls because they wanted these girls to have a sense of dignity. They wanted them to feel valued and worthy. And so they, they, they got these girls all dressed up and they came to this event and they gave them little certificates with their new names and the girls got to choose their names and some of them chose names like beautiful or prosperous or good one little girl is quoted in the article saying I can't wait for my friends at school to start calling me by my new name 
rather than calling me unwanted, which is the name she was given by her grandfather, she said, I can't wait for them to start calling me by my new name. And her new name that she gave herself was very tough. Very tough. You know, sometimes the people you want to want you just don't. They just don't. Sometimes cruel people in this world try to give you the name unwanted. They try to label you. But they have no right to do that. Only your creator in heaven is able to give you a name. And at baptism, guess what? You get a new name. Whatever name you've been given, when you come into contact with the blood of Christ, you are given a new name. Do you remember that phrase we kept reading over and over? In Him, in Him. In baptism, you are buried in Him. And you come out of the water with a new name. You wear the name of Jesus. You are clothed with Christ. When God sees you, he doesn't see someone who is a miserable failure. He doesn't see someone who has nothing to offer. He doesn't see someone who should just be ignored or dismissed or treated poorly. He sees someone who is precious. Someone he loves dearly. So much so that he sent Jesus to die for you. To make a way. He predetermined a way for you to be his child a son of the Most High, a daughter of the Most High God. You are God's elect. You are chosen by God, adopted by God, because he loves you. And so, who am I? You are chosen by God. If you don't mind, go ahead and stand up as we conclude. And we want to go back to our three declarations, but this time we want to add an affirmation at the end. And so if you believe this in your heart of hearts, I want you to say it. I want you to repeat after me. I am not what I have. I am not what I do. I am not what other people say about me. I am chosen by God. Embrace that reality, let it shape your identity, and live in that wonderful, profound truth that you belong to him, that he said, I want you. If we can help you today, if you want to choose him, because remember what I said earlier, love gives choice, love gives freedom of choice. God hasn't determined that you would love him. He wants you to, but he lets you choose. Maybe today you're ready to make that choice, to be baptized into Christ, to wear his name. Oh, we would be glad to celebrate with you. Or maybe we can encourage you and pray for you. We'd be happy to do that as well. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor right behind me, a little room back there. You can leave the auditorium and make your way there, and they would be happy to encourage you and pray for you. Or you can come down to the front as we sing together. On This is Sarah Nicole Getzinger, and she has decided that she wants to put Christ on in baptism, and we are so happy for her. I said, have you been thinking about this? Have you been studying? She said, I've been thinking about this for a long time, uh, like eight or nine years, long time. And I said, hey, better late than never, but it's, it's not too late. And so we are so happy for her. We're going to take her confession in the baptistry and baptize her, and afterwards...
We will try to make our way back down to the front. And any of you who can, I know some of you have plans, but I would encourage you, if you can, to be down here to hug her and congratulate her and tell you how happy you are for, for her. So let's go ahead and go up there. Sarah, I want you to know that the angels in heaven are rejoicing right now. And I know you've probably heard that phrase before, but it's true that God and his angels are rejoicing because of the choice you're making today. As we said earlier, he's chosen you, and now you are choosing him. And he rejoices over that, and so does this church family, and so does your family with your mom up here and others who I know are so proud of you. So I'm going to ask you the question we ask everyone, and that is, do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he lived on this earth, that he died on the cross, and that God raised him from the dead? Yes, I do. I'm so proud of that confession you're making, and it's based on that confession that I'm going to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit so that you'll receive forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit.